Good morning. I'd like you to take about 30 seconds and look at those pictures, those three pictures. Turn to somebody beside you and talk about what do they have in common? What do those pictures have in common with each other? Well, the correct answer is not that all three of them make you cry, unless you're an Alabama fan. They might. Um, These are coaches. These are trainers. That's a coach. The middle one is a teacher. The bottom one is a a fitness trainer. And coaches, teachers, trainers have this in common. They are trying to help people get from here to here, from point A to point B, to develop from where they are to where they need to go. Now, in many ways... That's very similar to what Christians do. It's certainly what the Apostle Paul did. He, in a spiritual sense, was a trainer. He helped people develop spiritually. And here at Harvest, we're going through the New Testament letter of Colossians. If you have a Bible or a phone, a device that you want to look up Colossians chapter 1, if not, we will have it on the screen for you. Today's passage... Uh, it gives his explanation of, of what that looked like for him, how he trained people spiritually. Now, although we are separated from Paul by thousands of years, and none of us have the same exact ministry that he has, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you share something in common with Paul. You and I are called by God to help other people develop spiritually. And that is what we're going to focus on today from Colossians chapter 1. Now, let me set the context of this passage. Um, After mentioning in chapter 1, verse 23, that he was a servant of the gospel, Paul now expands on his work of evangelism and disciple-making, also known as spiritual formation. I might use that term, spiritual formation, today in this passage. So it, as the passage develops, he, he says in verse 23, this is the gospel you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And it's like right after saying that, he goes into the passage that we're going to look at today. So let's look and read. We're not going to read the whole passage at first. We'll read verses 24 to 29, and then the other part of the passage I'll read uh, later in the message. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant By the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, 
admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Now, what is disciple-making? We use that term a lot, and we talk about making disciples. What does it mean to be involved with making disciples? Hopefully, everyone here and listening online is already a follower of Jesus yourself, but some of you might be in process and learning what it means. This is for you, too. This is for everyone. This, this will show us how we start on the path wherever we are and end up fully mature in Christ. Disciple-making is, here's a simple definition if we think about Jesus' last command that he left. It's the process by which followers of Jesus obey his command to develop others into mature followers of Christ. So that's all it is. It's a process in which we help other people develop as mature followers of Christ. And notice, it's from being lost. Everybody's lost without Christ because of our sin. We're separated from God. We move from being lost to being saved to being personally related to Jesus Christ, and then to being obedient disciples. It is a process. This is what is being talked about. And in week two of the 40 days of prayer, we're, we just started last week with week one. To, the, today is week two. Every week we take a section of Colossians and hopefully those that are able can look at it through the week and prepare for it. And then we come in on Sunday and we, we really try to focus and narrow it down to one thing that we can pray for for each other all week long. And here it is. Pray that believers will share the riches and glory of Christ with others. Warning them and working through God's power to help them mature in their faith. Now that's a long sentence. That's a lot of words. And you may not use those exact words, and that's fine. But hopefully today you'll see from the Scripture that those are biblical concepts, that those are the things that were really near Paul's heart, and he, as a follower of Jesus, therefore, it, it, they're really near God's heart. And these are ways that we can pray for each other. So basically, we're just going to kind of walk through the three sections of that. So notice what's highlighted here. Pray that believers will share the riches and glory of Christ with others. Let's start at verse 24, and let's work through this. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. And we need, this raises some questions. In what sense does Paul suffer for others? And how can he connect his sufferings with the sufferings, the afflictions of Christ? And, and really, how do you understand this claim that Christ's afflictions are somehow lacking in some way? You see what he's saying? I suffered for you a lot, church, and I'm just, I'm filling up the, 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 the afflictions of Christ. 
Paul discovered that part of sharing the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus with other people, involves suffering. It involves sacrifice. It involves effort. It involves paying a price because not everybody wants to hear it, and Satan certainly doesn't want people to hear it. There are passages, we won't look at them, but like in Corinthians, for instance, Paul talks about all the things he suffered in his ministry. He was shipwrecked, and he was stoned, and he was beaten, and he was hungry, and he was thirsty, and he didn't have enough clothes, and over and over and over, he suffered all of these things. But notice what his attitude it was. I rejoice. Now, most of us try to avoid suffering like the plague, right? (laughs) Nobody wants to suffer. But this isn't talking about just any kind of suffering, right? Like, we all go through suffering at times. There are health crises. There are relational problems. Maybe you have a job problem. Maybe someone you love is sick or passes away. And all of those are ways that we suffer. Paul is talking about a different kind of suffering here. He's talking about the suffering that comes with presenting the good news of Jesus to others. These are specific sufferings that he's talking about. These are sufferings he chooses because the benefit outweighs the cost. Now, how can we say that Christ's afflictions or Christ's sufferings are lacking? Well, there was a major misinterpretation of this verse that came through a papal bull by Clement VI in 1343. And it stated the Roman Catholic belief in a treasury of merits, that somehow Christ's sufferings, uh, the work that he did on the cross was defective and it needed to be supplemented by the sufferings of saints that would follow. But Paul is in no way referring to Christ's work on the cross here. When he does that, when he speaks of redemption in this passage and in other places, when he speaks of Jesus' sacrificial death, he uses language like blood and cross and death, not the word that's used here, afflictions. In fact, just a few verses earlier in Colossians, Paul has praised God for accomplishing reconciliation through Jesus Christ and his blood. In other words, it was done. It was complete. So human suffering does not create atoning benefit for Paul or anyone else. Well, what's lacking? Here's what's lacking. Jesus' bodily presence. In other words, Jesus was there and he had afflictions, hardships that he endured. And then he also had the the most... uh, the apex of his sufferings were, were, was suffering on the cross and paying that price. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended back to heaven. And now Paul is coming along later, and Christ is no longer bodily there, but Christ is part of the body of Christ. Uh, or Paul is part of the body of Christ. And so the sufferings that the body of Christ, that Jesus' followers continue to have are those that continue to complete 
the type of sufferings that Jesus had. It's like a continuation of what Jesus endured because he's not here anymore. Um, There's a passage in Philippians, we won't turn there, where Paul talks about uh, Epaphroditus not being there and talking about he wanted to make up for the, the, the care that you couldn't give for them. Well, they loved him. They couldn't give him care because he, he wasn't there in the moment. And Jesus is not physically there anymore. And that's why Paul says, what I am suffering is, is not making atonement for anyone's sin, but it's just following in the line of Christ's suffering. Does that make sense? This is, this is not an easy concept. Shake your head one way or another. If it doesn't make sense, I'll I'll keep talking about it. Because now you're going to all shake your head up and down so we can move on. And you know, we have brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world that really understand what that verse means a lot better than what we do. There are people that just when they name the name of Jesus, they might lose their job, they might go to jail, they, 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 might, they might be even martyred. They, they understand the sufferings of Christ and they're in that sense filling it up. And, and we don't usually have that kind of suffering, but there, there, there are things that we have to pay. We'll talk about that. Verse 25, I have become its servant, the servant of the gospel, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in his fullness. Now that word commission is really best captured by a word like stewardship. It's the essence of what's intended here. Paul's view is that the work that God called him to was a great privilege and a sacred trust. So while in one sense he was a servant of the church, ultimately he was a servant of Christ. This was God's idea. It was God's idea to call him, to entrust him with this ministry, and because he was God's servant, He then ended up serving the church. And what did he do? He presented the word of God in its fullness. He made known the full nature of the gospel as something that God had given to all people, not just to Jewish people, but also to Gentiles, all kind of people, not just to men, but to women, to children, all kind of people. And Paul discovered in his life that when you take the gospel out, it's not always met with open arms, but sometimes with hostility. So here's the principle that we we get from Paul. Again, we may not do exactly what Paul did or suffer in exactly the same way, but in order to share the riches and glory of Christ with others, and this is what we want to do ourselves, and this is how we want to pray for each other. It requires a willingness to pay the price to share the gospel. A willingness to pay the price to share the gospel. And I think it's a great question for us today. What are, what are we willing, what are we willing to give up to share the gospel? What price are we willing to pay just so that we'll see Christ formed in other people? Would it be comfort or money? Would you be willing to give up a week's of vacation time to go on a short-term mission trip and go to a different country with different culture and different food and maybe not electricity and, or running water just to tell people about Christ? 
Would you be willing to give up pride? Would you be willing to step out to your neighbors and instead of only talking about news, weather, and sports, tell them that you're a Christian and ask them how you can pray for them? Or ask them some questions, tell them that Christ means everything to you and you don't want to pressure them, but you'd love to talk to them about it sometime? Are you willing to give up pride about what they might think about you? Um, maybe you're working with somebody one-on-one who's already a Christian. You're trying to help them. You're trying to disciple them. You might have to give up some time. You might have to give up some sleep. Maybe all, you're both busy, and the only time you can meet is early in the morning. You might be, have to be willing to give up a little extra sleep so you can invest in somebody spiritually. As we think about the sacrifices that are necessary to share the gospel, with the lost, it, it serves us well to remember the next thing that's in this section, and that is that everything revolves around the riches and glory of Christ. I mean, it all revolves around who Jesus is. Verse 26 starts to explain what he means by this word of God in its fullness. It is the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. And when you read the word mystery, the the word mystery in the Bible, sometimes words in the Bible mean almost the same thing they mean in English used today. Sometimes they mean something very different. This is a time when it means something different. We think of mystery, we think of like a murder mystery, like, you know, a TV, who did it? And you got to figure out a movie or something like that. This is not that kind of mystery. In the Bible, the word mystery is something that in the Old Testament was hidden Everything about it wasn't known yet. It wasn't disclosed. And then at the right time, later in the New Testament, God opened up it to people. He explained it to people. That's what a mystery was. It's hidden in the Old Testament, but now revealed in the New Testament. And what was the mystery? Paul was Jewish, right? And the Jewish people were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And many of them mistakenly thought they were the only ones that were chosen by God. They were the only ones that God had designs on. But God had a design that it wasn't going to be just the Jewish people. It was going to be all people. And it wasn't going to be just external religion. It was going to be a person, the person of Jesus Christ living inside of them. That's verse 27. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, that's all non-Jewish people, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim. Paul's message about this mystery, it's not a religious system. It's not a religion at all. It's a person. It's Christ. It's Christ in you. It's a person. And that part was not revealed in the Old Testament. God the Father was honored in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit came upon people at different times, but they did not have the idea that God would actually dwell inside of them. And that's what happens today for Christians. 
God comes to live inside of you. When you open your heart and life to Jesus Christ, when you confess your sin to him and say, yes, I believe in you and need you, he comes in to live inside of you. And he is the one we proclaim. A couple years ago, not a couple years ago, a couple weeks ago, when I introduced this series on New Year's Eve, we took Colossians 1, 15 to 23, and we read that passage, and we talked about that passage, and it talked about Christ. We're not going to read the whole thing, but let me just go back and remind you how amazing this is that he lives inside of us. Who is it that lives inside of us if we're Christians? The Son is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Christ is supreme, and if you're a Christian, that's the person that's living inside of you. That's, a, that's the mystery inside of you. That's riches. So what we want to do as we pray for each other is pray that we'll understand who we have in Christ, who we are in Christ, the fact that he's in us, and we'll be willing to share that with others regardless of what it costs. Do you have a... I don't know if you have, you don't probably have it written down, but you probably have like a guideline, like how early it is to, to call somebody on the phone, right? How early it is in the morning or how late at night, do you, you know? Like, is there kind of a general time, like I'm not going to call somebody after whatever, it, unless it's an emergency. Do you have telephones? Do you have a cell phone? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. I, I remember... A lot of years ago, in fact, when my kids were young enough to be in school and, and my parents were living, I remember one day I took my son to school, and as I, I drove back from taking him to school early that morning, I talked to my mom on the phone, and she said, well, did you hear about so-and-so? And she named the lady, and I said, no. And she said, her name was on the radio, and she might win $10,000. And I said, did you let her know? She said, yes, I called her. And this was at 7.30 in the morning. And I'm like, you called her at 7.30 in the morning? And she said, well, yeah, it was good news. Right? By the way, if you ever hear my name, on, see my name on the internet, on the radio, that I've won $10,000, call me no matter what time it is. <laughs> when we understand the value of the news we have to share, then we're willing to maybe step out of our normal comfort zones, right? And that's what Paul is praying for first, that they, would, that they would really share this riches. And now it continues as we continue through the passage. Pray that believers will share the riches and glory of Christ with others, doing what? Warning them and working through God's power. Warning, it's, there's also teaching in here and admonishing. There's a lot more. We just had to try to summarize it in there. Um, 
verse 28, again, he's the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Paul was not a silent witness. Paul wasn't like, well, I'm just going to let them see Christ by my life and that's it. Now, it's valuable to let people see Christ in your life, but that's not enough. We need to tell people, and that's what he did. Not a religion, not a system of ethics, but a person. He is the one we could proclaim, or you could translate it, we proclaim him. Now, how did he do it? He did it by teaching, and he did it by admonishing. Now, admonishing is when you teach, or you instruct, or you warn. Uh, It's like even reprove people when it's needed. Maybe they're going astray. And teaching is sharing with them the truth. But notice that discipleship, disciple-making, is not just for people like Paul. It's not just for apostles. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for missionaries. So, for instance, Paul will say in another place, Romans 15, verse 14, I myself am convinced my brothers and sisters, just talking to regular Christians, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. This is something that we all can do with each other. And back to Colossians 1, 29, he says, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. In the original language, this reads, to this end, I labor. The word Labor refers to hard work in general. It's used in places in the New Testament about farmers who we know are hard workers, about fishing, like Peter said, using the word to Jesus in Luke 5, 5, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. So he, he, he's, it's, it reads, to this end I labor. And then Paul adds this participle that builds on the metaphor. Uh, it, it's the word struggling, which means to struggle or fight, or it even could mean like even using weapons in it's such a physical conflict. So the, the NIV, the, the version that we use here in our public preaching and teaching, puts those together and translates it, I strenuously contend. Think about an athlete struggling to get across the finish line. So, uh, That's what strenuously contend. It might look like this. I love this picture of these runners, that they're coming to the finish line and they're just, everything that's in them is is working towards it. So it involves effort. It involves human effort. But Paul wants us to know that though it involves human effort, human effort can't create the results. In order to bear fruit and to succeed, there has to be power that comes from somewhere else. And he says, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. This is God's energy in us. So are you wondering about people in your life that aren't followers of Jesus that you would love to be and you're thinking, how in the world can it ever happen? Because they're not even interested or they might even be antagonistic, right? And they might tell you, they might not use language that you want to repeat. 
Remember that Christ is in you. Do you want to help form and shape people who are already followers of Christ into mature followers of Christ? How can you do it? You're limited. I'm limited. Christ is in you. God is in you. Paul was a a warrior, a veteran warrior for God, but he didn't depend on his personal training. He didn't depend on his skill. He depended on the power that was within him. That is Christ. And so here's the principle. Although we work hard, effectiveness comes from God's indwelling power. So that's two-thirds of the prayer. The final third is this. So we're praying that believers will share the riches and glory of Christ with others, warning them and working through God's power. Why? It gives us the goal to help mature them in their faith. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And there's a, there's a horizontal aspect and there's a, a vertical aspect. The horizontal aspect, like on this plane, is what are we trying to do? We're maturing other believers in Christ. This is what making disciples is. We're, we're, we're helping others mature. We're helping them become fully mature in Christ. And then he goes in the rest of the passage, verses 1 to 5, to talk about some of the things that that maturity involves. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea, for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart. That's one thing, that people would be encouraged. That they would be united in love. That's another. They may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. People as far back as the first century in which this was written, right after Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, concocted some fine Sounding arguments to discount his supremacy. And today in our culture, they're out there. Jesus is just a good moral teacher, just one of many options. I might be able to elaborate on some of these next week because it's relevant to that passage. Paul says in verse 5, For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are, and how firm your faith in Christ is. And one of the results of seeing people mature in faith is joy. It just delights us when we see people take steps. And this could be people that God, that are in a similar life stage with us, or people that are younger than us, or certainly if you're a parent, you're a Christian parent, this would be your work with your children all the time. To, to develop this. So let me just picture it this way. I talked about disciple making as being a process. So here's just a, a rudimentary picture of it. You're a Christian. And Christ is inside of you. And there are people that are lost. And 
through Christ's power, you just reach out to them. And what happens to them? Through the power of Christ, they become Christians. And then they grow towards maturity. That's what this whole passage is about. And that's what we want to be involved with. And that's what, how we want to pray for each other. Because we all know who have tried this, that it's really hard. <laughs> and it can be really slow. And sometimes we get mixed results. You might work with one person and they might be on fire. And you might work with another person and they might lose interest. So let's pray for each other for all of this. I think we'll do. I've got, I'm going to have to skip some stuff. I've got a, some, a lot of practical tips. We don't really have time for them. I think maybe we're doing a lot of podcasts with this. Maybe we'll, we'll do a podcast and just talk about some of the practical tips. But I, before I close, I want to give the vertical aspect. So there's a, there's a horizontal aspect that's pr- fully mature. The vertical aspect is presenting people to God. Look what Paul says again back in verse 28. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Present means to bring something into someone's presence, to show them, to offer, to yield, to dedicate, or to present. It's it's almost like a gift. In fact, it's a lot like giving a gift. Now, Paul doesn't tell us in this passage whom he wants to present this gift of spiritually mature people to. But can there be any doubt that he's talking about presenting them to God at the final judgment day? 2 Corinthians 11.2 reveals a striking and revealing parallel He says to the Corinthians, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. So you see, this is what Paul was doing. Paul was saying, I'm working hard on the horizontal plane to help people mature. But there's a big, huge vertical, and that is, I'm doing this to give you to God. Do any of you have somebody on your, like we just went through Christmas recently, do you have somebody on your Christmas shopping list that's impossible to shop for? It's like, you know, you can't think, what can I give them? (laughs) You know, you ask them, well, what do you want? Well, I don't want anything. You know, there are people like that, like, and so I'm thinking about Paul. I think Paul's like, I want to give a gift to God. Okay. Now we think that there are people that it's hard to give them a gift because they, quote, have everything. Now God has everything, right? (laughs) Paul's probably thinking the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those that dwell therein. For he founded it on the seas and he established it on the... All right, so what can I give to God? And then he thinks... What matters the most to God? Maybe it's people. God doesn't want people to be separated from him. God doesn't want people to live their lives reaching out for the next thing 
and not knowing him personally. God wants people to be saved. God wants people to be redeemed. God wants people to have him living inside of them. And so Paul is thinking, maybe I can give that to God. So Paul gets his little gift bag out. And he's going to give it to God. And so if we open up Paul's gift bag, thinking beyond Colossians, what might we find in it? What could he give to God? And he might go, oh, here's Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Aristarchus. Timothy. These are people that Paul influenced. These are people that Paul shaped into spiritual formation. So he's just going to give God this present. Olympus, Trophina and Trophosa, Mary. Man, the gift just keeps on giving. Jesus, who is called Justice, Phoebe, Jason, Julia. Onesimus, the once runaway slave. Tychicus, Epaphras. It's an awesome thought to me to think that as we work with people to shape them into the image of Christ, He's the one who ultimately does the work, but we participate with him and we make whatever sacrifice is necessary. We're going to have a gift to give to the Lord. And that's what it's going to be, those people. And that's why we say that today we want to pray that believers will share the riches and glory of Christ with others. Warning them and helping them through God's power to help mature them in their faith. You don't have to use those exact words, but that's the concept. Will you bow your heads with me, please? I'm going to give you a minute to pray for yourself, and then we're going to close our service by praying for some others that are around us. As you think about this incredible mystery, I want to ask you, where are you on that spectrum? Where are you on that diagram? Are you, are you still lost? Are you just going through life trying to be good, trying to be enough? Have you opened your heart and life to Jesus by faith to be saved? This is a great chance. You've heard how much he loves you and what he did for you today. Open your heart to him now. And then ask if you're a follower of Christ, are you, are you engaging with other people to help mature them? Children, neighbors, workers, friends? 
Lord, we are so, so thankful for the cross, for what you did for us, that you came to live, to die for us. I pray if there's anybody listening who hasn't received you, that today will be the day they begin to do that. And for all of us who have, Lord, will you empower us to get our eyes off ourselves and our own schedule and our own difficulties and challenges and to really reach out in love to other people to help shape them into Christ's image. We need your power. We need your help. But you have promised it and you have given it. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.